Let me invite you to find a Bible and to turn in it with me to Psalm 13 uh, as we continue our study through the Psalms. At least for the time being, we come to uh, the next Psalm. It is addressed to the choir master, and it is again another Psalm of David. We're looking at all six of the verses found in this Psalm together. It is a very succinct, it is a very straightforward, it is a very intentionally, carefully structured Psalm. But as I hope to show you, it's a very intense Psalm. Uh, In fact, when we move from David's language in Psalm 11 and then particularly Psalm 12 through to Psalm 13, we notice something of an increasing intensity. Uh, It is as if a moment of desperation has come. And I hope to make some remarks about that in just a moment. But So we're going to look at Psalm 13 together uh, quickly, I think. But uh, before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, a wonderful day of worship, a wonderful day of being able to gather with your people. We thank you now for the privilege of having your word in our hands, for the grace and the kindness that you've showed us and giving us the the, the capacity to read and to understand it. And so as we uh, seek to do that now, we pray that you would help us, that by the ministry of your spirit, you would open your word of truth and power to us. And that from these verses, we would learn about you, we would learn about ourselves, and we would learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. In his precious name we pray, amen. Psalm 13, again, a psalm of David addressed here to the choir master. He begins, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. As I stated a moment ago, when we consider the progression of David's mental state from Psalm 12 to Psalm 13, we note an increasing depth of darkness and an increasing intensity to his emotions. He has moved to a place and to a point of utter desperation, it seems. In Psalm 11 and Psalm 12 particularly, he is seen in uh, the grips of the emotions and the feelings of loneliness. He declares in Psalm 12 that all the righteous ones have vanished, presumably leaving him alone to bear that responsibility before God. All of the godly ones are gone presumably save David. And so he is expressing a sense of loneliness and feelings uh, of, of loneliness. Now in Psalm 12, we find him so far from that to an expression of feelings of abandonment. And this progression makes sense. Perhaps this is a progression that psychologically speaking, emotionally speaking, 
uh, some of us, even in this room, can understand, perhaps identify with. Maybe they are emotions and a progression that we have experienced in our own life at various different points, where we move from a sense of isolation to the sorrow and self-pity of loneliness, and ultimately from loneliness, not just to being alone, but feeling uh, an overwhelming sense of abandonment that leaves us in the desperate uh, circumstance of depression uh, and desperation, feeling that there is no hope. Just a note, uh, here David particularly uh, thinks that the abandonment is one of the Lord. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? You, you, You sense this tone of abandonment, this desperation, because he is He is in a place of such darkness that it is as if to him God has abandoned him altogether. Let me just make a note. There is nothing more frightening. There is no darkness so deep than to think that you have been abandoned by God. I want you to think about that as you read this psalm. Uh, The feelings of abandonment, the desperation that is here, the tone of such intensity Listen, we have never for one moment of any day of our lives experienced the abandonment of God. We know nothing of what it is to be completely separated from His grace, from His kindness, from His mercy extended to us. Even when we were dead in trespass and sin, God caused the rain to come upon our fields and He caused the sun to shine upon our heads. He caused the health to be uh, found in our families and in our bodies and so forth. We know nothing of what it is to be abandoned by God. And a sense, a real sense of that kind of abandonment, of the complete absence of God, Him choosing to separate Himself from us is something that is of the utmost frightening nature. Do you know that's why hell is hell? Hell is so bad not because the fire is so hot, but because God is not there. And because for the first time in the existence of any soul that is put there, for the first time ever, they experience the complete abandonment of God, where He completely separates Himself from them and where His grace and His mercy and His kindness is far from them, absolutely so. So just to note that that David here is in the depth of one of the darkest places. Now, it may be interesting for us, and we may be sitting here atop our towers of sort of self-righteousness, thinking, how can anyone ever believe that God would abandon them? Shame on that person. Um, A sense of Christian abandonment is not often confessed in our churches today. We do not often speak about this feeling uh, or struggling with this sense of depression and darkness and emotion. It's not commonly talked about. But perhaps you are in that very place tonight. I don't know. You would not say it, but you know that you're there. 
You wouldn't want anyone to know it. You don't want your friends or your family to be aware of it. But in the secret places of your heart, you are wrestling with the dark depression that comes with wondering whether God has abandoned you, has separated himself from you, has, in the words of David, hidden his face from you. You don't know where he is. You can't feel a sense of his presence in your life. His blessings do not seem readily available to you. His ear seems very distanced from you. Just a couple of notes as we begin to consider this psalm together. Take heart, dear Christian friend. David, King David, here gives words to your struggle. King David knew it well. And he was willing to confess it. He was willing to talk about it. He was willing to acknowledge in his frailty and in his humanity the struggle of the sense that God is not there. David knew this darkness. And he has finally reached the bottom of that pit by the time you get to Psalm 13. We don't know the occasion. We don't know the specific instance the specific battle or enemy that he has been dealing with that has caused him to think that the blessings of God for him that he's experienced in times past are gone even if only for the moment. That God has abandoned him and hidden his face from him even if only for the moment. But David is willing here in the midst of this psalm to give words, to give language, to give credence to this depression and to this darkness and to this despair. And that's good news for us, because while it may be taboo for Christians today to speak about this reality, it is not foreign to the Christian life. There are three parts to this psalm. It breaks out very neatly. There are six verses divided into three. There are two verses in each stanza. Verses one and two, we see his depression. Verses three and four, we see David making petition. And verses 5 and 6, we see David enjoying restoration. Depression, petition, and restoration. And one of the beautiful things about psalms like Psalm 13, one of the beautiful things about this song that has been given, and I say song because look at verse 6, I will sing to the Lord, because he's dealt bountifully with me, the song of the brokenhearted and the sorrowful and the depressed and the despairing. We've been given songs like Psalm 13. One of the beautiful things about that is because not only does it give words, it gives language to this reality in the Christian life. It gives us encouragement to know that we're not alone. To know that David experienced this and he was willing to talk about it. You're not the only Christian that's ever wondered if God was there and if he had left you. We're also given, I think, a wonderful pattern for how to deal with it. And I think that's what you have here. Depression, petition, and restoration. And I think we find in that a pattern. So let's go straight to it. Verses 1 and 2 then, we're going to see the declaration of the depth of his despair. That's a lot of Ds. In short, we're going to see the depression that David is facing. Here's what he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget? How long will you hide your face from me? Whatever David is feeling, the first reality of this state of emotion is that it is a lengthy battle. 
This is not the kind of despair that someone who knows the Lord reaches on a moment or on a whim or in the midst of an immediate temporary battle. Whatever David was facing, it was a lengthy struggle. And friends, like David, the, the, the difficulties of God's providence in our lives, they can span days and weeks and months and years and years can turn into decades. They can get us down, to put it plainly. They can get us in a funk. Depression is something that Christians struggle with. Do you know, historically speaking in the church, some of the greatest men of faith, pastors and preachers that you have loved and benefited from dearly in their writing, in their teaching, in their preaching, have experienced some of the greatest depression that has ever been written about. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, these men have written in their diaries, in their writings about the depth of the depression that they dealt with. These are men who knew the graces of God. They knew the truths of Scripture. They reminded themselves of gospel promises. We were talking about that in our book club. They knew that their life was hid with God and Christ. None of us are immune to this kind of depression. None of us are immune through the Christian life to these kind of lengthy struggles. In fact, we are assured that as, the, as, as Jesus, our captain, our shepherd, our king, and our savior, that as he struggled along in this life, even to the point of death, so too shall we struggle. For as they hated our master, so they will hate those who serve him. Secondly, look at what he says twice again. Not only the length of the struggle, he says, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me. Look at verse 2. How long? Again, you see that there. What is he getting at with, will you forget me and will you hide your face from me? I think secondly, what we know that has brought about this depression is not only a lengthy struggle, but a struggle in which intimacy and blessing with and of God seems to be lacking. Now, let me be clear about that. Whatever has taken place, at least from David's perception, the blessings of God that he once knew at other times in his life, for him now on this day, they seem to be missing. So that he is not enjoying the same kind of temporal blessings and daily blessings and victories we might want to call them. To think very practically and in terms that you've probably heard in the church again and again and again. He's not on the mountaintop at this time. He's been in a long valley for a long time. But part of that valley is the feeling, one, that the benefits of his salvation, the blessings of God are not coming to him. That's what he means, will you forget me forever? But also intimacy. For one reason or another, he's going through a season where... You know, maybe he didn't feel like his prayers and his cries, his pleading with God were making it beyond the top of the cave he was hiding in. I don't know. But he feels as if God has hidden his face from him. As if he's not even listening, as if he's not there. And this is King David. This is the one who declared in Psalm 11, no, I'm not going to run to the mountains and hide and look to myself. No, I'm not going to listen to these insanely unwise counselors. He cries out to the Lord. 
Psalm 12. He speaks of the words of the Lord as those which are pure words. Those words which will be kept. This is King David. And he says, why have you hidden your face from me for so long? Christian, I, I don't know if you've ever been there, but I know that I have. Those, those, those periods of spiritual dryness, they can be caused by a lot of things. Sin in our own life. Difficulties in relationships. A failure to submit ourselves to the means of God's grace when we're not participating in worship the way that we once did. When we're not looking to God's word the way that we once did. We're not, we're not engaging in prayer the way that we once did. We're not communing with the saints of God the way that we once did. Look, you want to have a real dry spiritual sense about you? You want to be real spiritually depressed? Find no time for the people of God in your life. We may get on your nerves and we may hurt you and sin against you, but God has made you to need me. And God has made me to need you. And one of the means of God's grace in our life is the people of God. They sharpen us. They encourage us. They convict us. They hold us accountable. They encourage us on the way. One of the means of God's grace in our life is worship. The corporate worship of God. I don't mean in your car listening to the radio, singing some wonderful song at the top of your lungs. That's good too. But God commands, do not forsake the assembling together of the body. That's not just to give us rules, guys. It's because when we do, we will grow cold. Because one of the means of God's grace in our life is that we will be ministering with and worshiping with the saints before the throne of God. And Chase put it this way pretty bluntly uh, over the last couple of weeks, I don't remember exactly when, that he worries that a lot of Christians are going to be really disappointed when they get to heaven. Because they're going to be worshiping for eternity. They don't even want to worship now. So when we separate ourselves from the the means of God's grace, what I mean by that is the things that God has apportioned and appointed and given to us as the, the agents or the conduits through which he ministers his grace to us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the corporate worship of the church, the body of Christ in covenant fellowship with one another, the word of God and prayer, singing, spiritual hymns and songs, all of these things are the means of grace in our life. And for one reason or another, I'm not projecting to, uh, to pretending to know what the problem is here with David's life, and I'm not projecting any of those things upon him, but for some reason or another, he is sensing a sense Uh, He is sensing a a time when the blessings of God that he once knew are no longer his at the moment. And it seems to him as if God is not near. So a length of struggle, a lack of intimacy, and an absence of blessing. And then thirdly, I want you to see that this leads to an inward focus and a dwelling on our failures and our sin. Look at what he says, verse 2. Because of this, how long, O Lord, must I take counsel in my soul? The idea there being, how long must I dwell upon? How how long must I think about it day in and day out, and as a result, have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Downtrodden, downcast, desperation. James Montgomery Boyce called this verse 2 the dark thoughts and uncontrollable emotions that we get into. 
So there's been a length of struggle. The blessings of God seem somewhat absent from our life. The the communion with God that we once knew seems dry and cold. And the next thing you know, we begin to dwell on our sin and our failures and our problems. We begin to stare at our navels instead of gazing to heaven and to Christ and the cross. We begin to be inwardly self-focused instead of Jesus-focused. And these dark thoughts lead to uncontrollable emotions. We end up depressed and desperate, pleading with God to, to move and to work. Just again... Let me just tell you, if you're there tonight, or if you were there yesterday, or if you end up there tomorrow, take heart, friend, dear Christian, you're not alone. King David knew these emotions, and that should give you comfort. And it's not misery loves company. That is not my point. But he gives language and gives reason and gives clarity so that there is hope for restoration. You're not alone. Uh, and we're given here a pattern. So, so what do you do? What did David do? He did not run to the mountain as he declared in 11. But in fact, he did just as he promised. He declared and cried out unto the Lord in 12. And he does so again here. He makes a very impassioned petition. A prayer. Look at verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. That's a simple sentence in the English. It comes with immense intensity in the original language. The idea here is that he is calling upon God not only to hear him, to incline his ear to be near, but to respond to him having taken notice and listened favorably, to come with the response of a favorable action on his account. He is seen here petitioning God to do something, pleading with God to work and to move and to change his plight. Let that be the note. Uh, Don't miss that. Let that be the first point that is to be made. What do you do when you feel like this? What do you do when you end in this pit of despair and depression There may be many things to be done, but you must pray. You must first and foremost turn to the Lord. For if He does not deliver, if He does not move and work, then you shall not ever be delivered. He says, consider and answer me. Work favorably upon my behalf and in my circumstance, O Lord my God. Look, he's added there, not just O Lord, but O Lord my God. What does he ask him? Well, look, following in 3b through 4. First, he begs God, light up my eyes. Light up my eyes. This this is odd. We don't really talk about uh, lighting up our eyes. We don't use this language, but it, it, it is the idea, literally cause my eyes to shine. I think that's maybe more helpful. The idea being that if we are in the pit of despair that David knows at this moment that our eyes are darkened and our eyes are gloomy, 
ultimately until we are overtaken and die and our eyes are completely darkened or closed. Does that make sense? The opposite of that then in the Hebrew mindset was that something would come along to cause our eyes to shine, to glimmer, to sparkle, to have a luster about them. And so he is pleading with God now to do something that would cause his eyes to shine. Now in this plea, he contends with God. He makes arguments with God, not not in a disrespectful way. But look at what he declares first, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Well, David knew that he was God's instrument. He knew that he was God's child. He knew that he was God's king over God's people, etc. And he, he cries out here, listen, if you don't do something, I am going to die. But for the sake of your plans for me and for your people, deliver me. Exalt my countenance, lift me up, cause my eyes to shine, lest I be taken to the sleep of death. Secondly, look at the argument. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Don't you know that there were many enemies of God that would have taken great pleasure in knowing that David had ultimately failed? Doesn't that make sense? And he says, lest ultimately I am overtaken and my enemies are given occasion for rejoicing because they have succeeded and in their mind's eye, I have failed. And his second point is and by extension, you have failed. Oh God, look at what he says thirdly. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken or moved there. What's his point? He's pleading with God. He's contending with God. And I think he's doing that well. He's making his petition in very strong terms. God, deliver me, not only for me, but for your own glory. So that in the the rising of my countenance, in the deliverance of my body and and of my mind, excuse me, that in restoring me, My enemies would not stand over me celebrating the death of God's king and they would see that I have been given life and sustenance and restoration because of a God who loves me and is stronger than those who are my enemies. You see that? So he's making this, he's contending with God. He begs God to hear and to answer him, to respond favorably with action. He wants that action to be something that would restore the luster to his eyes and cause them to shine. And he argues with God that this is on his own account so that his enemies would not gloat in his defeat and by extension that they would not rejoice in the defeat of David's God either. Do we pray like that? You know, do we come to the Lord again and again and again pleading with God, contending with God, seeking His moving, I will tell you this, very simply, if we really believed that God was the only solution, we would never cease to contend for His hand. Do you understand? We may come to God on a moment or every now and then, or we may try once, we may ask, our, uh, ask him about our problem to come and fix it one time or occasionally. We may maybe make some sort of pleading or argument with him superficially or, or, or offhand in, 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 in a knee-jerk reaction. 
But we don't pray like this, I think, frankly, because we believe that there may be another solution. If we knew that God, as the sovereign King, Lord, Savior, Creator, and Sustainer of our lives and of every event that takes place in them, if we knew that He must move in order for our circumstance to change, we would go to Him again and again and again, however long it took, and we would seek to contend with Him, making good biblical sound arguments that He would deliver us for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord and His own glory and the furtherance of His kingdom. And that's what David does. And so, dear Christian, if you're struggling with depression like this tonight, I can only tell you to go like David did to the Lord, to beg him until he answers, to respond favorably to you. Rest your hope in his plans for you. Finally, we see restoration, verses 5 and 6. David is going to be seen as restored in some sense here, having been moved from the depths of despair and depression in verses 1 and 2 to the song being sung to the Lord in verse 6. Look at the restoration that comes after this petition. He reminds himself, he remembers, he is moved by God's hand to a better place of thinking. How does he think? He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast Love, two things here. Notice it is I have trusted. He is calling to mind the way that he has trusted and followed the God that loved him in the past. Remember how God has moved and worked to save you before. Notice he connects, I have trusted in you, particularly In what? In your steadfast love. What does he say? I am going to remember the deliverances of God in my life previously based upon his steadfast or faithful or covenant love for me. That's the first thing. Secondly, look at what he says. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Not only does he remember the faithfulness of God to him in times past, that he was a God worthy of trust in accord with his steadfast love for David. He then says on the heels of that, I am committing myself now today. I shall right now find joy if in nothing else in what? In your salvation. He's reorienting his perspective. He is using the promises of God to correct his thinking. That's a good practice, Christians. Take the word of God and his promise and educate yourself. Train your mind. Beat it with a whip. Do whatever you have to do to whip it into shape. And declare to yourself in the midst of these kinds of depressions, after you make petition to God, I will trust in him because he has been faithful to me and I shall today rejoice if I cannot rejoice in anything else in that I am hidden in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I am saved. 
And if the difficulties of the current despair and darkness overtake me completely and I do sleep, they will have done me but a favor for they will have delivered me unto glory because I am safe. So he commits to find joy now today. I shall and then look, I will. He remembers the faithfulness of God in times past. He reminds himself of the glorious benefits of the salvation of God today, and he commits in his heart to sing a song of praise to the Lord tomorrow. Why? Notice, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That's very interesting. Presumably for David, even before all of the darkness had given way to light, He sees now that the Lord has indeed dealt bountifully with him. Just a couple of notes and I'm going to pray and we're going to be dismissed. Do you know that God generally teaches us a tremendous amount more in the times of depression and in the valleys of darkness in our life than at any other time? We learn more about his steadfast love and his faithfulness. We learn more about his ability to care for us and to redeem us. We learn more about his trustworthiness when we fear that we are at the end of our rope than at any other time. We learn to trust him. We learn to lean on him. We learn how sweet his kindnesses to us are. Secondly, my point in that is simply Take heart. If you are in the darkness of this sort of despair tonight, take heart in knowing that God is using it to teach you, to reveal to you who He is. Secondly, God means through every difficult season to build up His church, to bless His people, and to bring them to eternal bliss. And I don't use that word irresponsibly. But all of the difficult seasons of our life, they are not given to us irresponsibly or willy-nilly without any point or purpose. Beyond the purpose of teaching us to trust Him, He wants us to trust Him. Why? Because if we will learn to trust Him, we will be safely brought to eternity with Him. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what it means when the New Testament tells us to... um, that, 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 that all things, all, all of them, work for the good of God's children, those who love God and those who are called according to His purposes. You know, a lot of non-Christians like to use that verse. <laughs> they do so irresponsibly. That, that, that promise is not for them. But for those who are the children of God, those who look to Him, trust Him, see His steadfast faithfulness before, and commit to sing a song of joy in His salvation today and tomorrow, those who love God and are called according to His plans and purposes out for salvation, all things, it says, work for their good. Well, take heart. There is a good end to your difficulty and suffering. Thirdly and lastly, take heart tonight if you are in the midst of that sort of despair. I don't know what it is, and I don't know how long it has lasted, 
and I don't know how long it will last. Like David, it, will, it may well be lengthy. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide your face from me? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? But it is, no matter how long, temporary. It's temporary. Every circumstance of this life, the greatest difficulty, the most intense persecutions, they are all temporary and they shall all pass away. And when they do, we shall see glory. The Bible says that though the sorrow may last for the night, the point being it may last all night long. Joy comes with the morning. It's using an illustration of the natural process of the rising and the setting of the sun. That the darkness of night can pose very great difficulties. No matter how great they are, and the difficulties may last all night long, the point that he's making is the sweetness of God's grace shining through the sun will come up in the morning. Friends, whatever you're facing today, tonight, tomorrow, yesterday, last month, whatever has been going on in your life, in your heart, in your family, in your marriage, in your children, for years, and what may continue for years to come, praise God that He's using it for your good, He is using it to bring you to glory, and it is only temporary. What did the Apostle Paul say? He said, all of the greatest difficulties of this life, all of the sorrows, all of everything, good and bad, all of them were worth it. All of them were worth it if I can know Jesus Christ and be found in Him. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, uh, we praise Your name tonight for indeed saving us in Christ. And though we know that salvation, and, and we want to be reminded of those wonderful promises and truths, God, the reality is that many of us may feel tonight a deep sense of sadness and sorrow and depression We may feel like you're not there. We may be struggling with a sense of absolute abandonment. God, I thank you for this psalm, this song that's given language to that struggle. But God, I thank you also for the pattern that we find here. Depression and petition and restoration. And so God, we pray tonight that you would hear us, that you would respond favorably upon us and to us that you would work in our lives and you would change those circumstances in accord with your will. God, that in order that our enemies might not stand and gloat over us and proclaim that their God is dead for he could not save them, God, we pray that you would deliver us. For our sake, for the sake of Christ your Son, and for your own glory. But God, even as we struggle along in the midst of that darkness, we pray that you would help us to remember your faithfulness and your steadfast love for us. We pray that you would help us to find joy, the joy of salvation, even in the midst, even today. And God, that we will purpose in our heart to sing before you 
um, for your love and your salvation, your son, they're more precious than life. God, thank you that all of our suffering is temporary, but your promised blessings for eternity with you and salvation are eternal. God, may that be our hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.